Policy Matters is produced by Aegon and Transamerica's Government and Policy Affairs team based in Washington, D.C. and The Hague. Hello and welcome back to Policy Matters, the podcast that examines the intersection of Aegon and Transamerica's business strategy with public policy issues at the state, federal, and international levels. In this episode, Sean Cassidy on our team has a conversation with Transamerica Institute's CEO, Catherine Collinson. Transamerica Institute is a well-respected, non-for-profit entity funded by Aegon and Transamerica that conducts independent research on a variety of retirement and health-related issues and suggests policy recommendations for lawmakers and regulators to consider. The Institute's recommendations are widely reported and relied upon. Catherine is a terrific partner for us and helps to raise our brand's visibility inside the DC Beltway and across the country. She also works very closely with Mike Mansfield, Program Director for Aegon's Center for Longevity and Retirement. So thanks again, and let's have a listen. Hello, and welcome to Policy Matters. This is Sean Cassidy, and I have the pleasure of introducing Catherine Collinson to our audience today. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Catherine is President and CEO of Transamerica Institute, and instead of describing it myself, I'm going to let Catherine do so. Catherine, can you uh, describe for us your your sort of uh, path that brought you to the Institute? Well, Transamerica Institute is a nonprofit private foundation that gets its charitable funding from Transamerica. Um, our mission is to conduct research and do education and outreach around the latest uh, issues and trends surrounding uh, health, wellness, uh, retirement, and uh, financial security. And we have two research centers, a Center for Health Studies and a Center for Retirement Studies. Now, to your question, how did I join Transamerica Institute? In some ways, uh, the question is, how did <laughs> how did it join me? Uh, last month, I celebrated 25 years with Transamerica. Um, I started in the retirement division, and back in the mid to late 90s, uh, we started this little retirement survey, a small business retirement survey within what at the time was Transamerica Retirement Services, now known as Transamerica Retirement Solutions, uh, a small retirement survey uh, of small businesses. And a couple of years, it w- just saw a tremendous potential for this survey. And by 2002, set up a collaboration of experts within uh, Transamerica Retirement Services called Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies. And leading that effort uh, over the next few years, I felt like we were hitting the wall in terms of our outreach. We do a lot of media outreach, but every time I talk to a reporter, they're like, well, what are you selling? Are you the marketing division? And then they, they generally wouldn't want to talk with us. Uh, so by 2007 with, with Kent Callahan, got the green light to incorporate Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies as a nonprofit uh, and a federally recognized 501c3. So uh, that was the game changer that I was looking for, that Kent was looking for, that really put us on the map with our research and our outreach efforts. Uh, And then from there, in 2013, we added the Center for Health Studies and expanded into Transamerica Institute, um, and the rest is history. That's great. Thank you. I want to come back to this 501c3 issue and its implications, but first, um, could you describe the team a little bit? I mean, we're all in this this COVID uh, environment, we're all working remotely, but prior to COVID, 
was was the team working as a group in the same physical location or were you distributed around the country and around the world? And do you rely on full-time employees or independent contractors or a mix of both? Great question. Well, our our team, our dedicated team is based here in Los Angeles, where I'm speaking to you from, uh, with a small office in downtown Los Angeles. Um, and we, we have a small and mighty team, just to be clear, um, including myself, we have five full-time employees and three interns at given time. Um, however, uh, we also, uh, as part of the Institute and being so closely aligned with Transamerica, we also depend on experts, we'll call volunteer experts across Transamerica to help out, help out with some specific uh, issues or needs. So, for example, the law department looks at our contracts and agreements and helps guide us. Uh, uh, the procurement team and, of course, the government affairs team, uh, very close contact so that we can keep on, on top of the issues, keep things on our radar screen. And, um, and thank you for helping spread the word about our research and our research findings. That is the easiest part of my job. So let's come back to this 501c3 uh, situation and, and what it means for you. So I have the pleasure and privilege of formally lobbying on Transamerica's interests in, in Washington. So I'm a registered lobbyist. But I understand that um, as a 501, representing a 501c3 organization, you are not actually lobbying. But can you talk about some of the other that there, there's still some opportunities for advocacy, correct? What what other types of public policy advocacy can you engage in short of lobbying? Uh, great question. As a 501c3, we are prohibited from lobbying. And, and the strictest definition in that, that definition being that we cannot promote specific pieces of legislation. We cannot endorse candidates. Um, we we cannot you know, we cannot engage in that type of lobbying, but through our research, we often find, especially with re areas uh, related to retirement security, our research often surfaces opportunities that could be best addressed through some sort of public policy or policy reforms. And, and we like to highlight that. And as long as we're not promoting a specific candidate or piece of legislation, we're okay. So for example, um, I think I'm singing to the choir listening to this. Our research continues to find that uh, there is ample room to expand retirement plan coverage among US workers. Um, and particularly, for example, part-time workers. And that's been an issue that we've talked about for years. Uh, and even though we could not lobby for the SECURE Act, uh, because we're prohibited from that, we were absolutely delighted to see that it included provisions uh, to extend eligibility to long-term part-time employees. That's great. Thank you for explaining that. And I, and I will take the opportunity to make a a plug or provide my own testimonial that even though you are clearly in, uh, running an independent organization, um, the GPA team here at Transamerica, we certainly share the work that you're doing. Uh, we make it clear that this is coming from an independent um, organization. But but the studies that you're putting together, um, I can tell you Capitol Hill staff, administrative agency staff, they really uh, look forward to getting those. They find them very uh, informative, credible, objective. 
Um, so we do our best to distribute them and to make sure that people are, are looking at some of the same issues that, that you're focusing on. So we have no shortage of, of issues in the U.S. to talk about with, return, with regard to retirement security, but I understand another facet of your, of your focus is to look internationally and to work with some other organizations within the Aegon network um, to look internationally. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the one of my favorite, one of the funnest parts of our job, my job and our team's job is, uh, and I think this is also really cool, that, oh my gosh, it is now going on 10 years ago, um, I got an email from the head of sustainability at the corporate center um, that they liked our work at Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies. And could we collaborate and work together and do a survey on a global basis? Um, so here we are 10 years later. We're now working on uh, with a team in The Hague uh, at the Corporate Center, now called the Aegon Center for Longevity and Retirement, as well as retirement experts in in uh, business units across Aegon, including Brazil. We have a very strong Brazilian presence on the team uh, and their own nonprofit, Instituto de Longevidade Majoral Aegon. Uh, we are now working on the 10th annual Aegon Global Retirement Readiness Survey. Wow. To be released in 2021. Okay, so now, I, now I'm, I'm curious, in your opinion, given all of these global studies that you've undertaken, in your opinion, is there another country that is doing it better than the U.S. when it comes to providing retirement savings incentives? Or is it too just too difficult to compare given that some countries rely more on defined benefit, whereas the U.S. defines uh, relies rather more on a defined contribution mechanism? One of, one of the highlights of the survey and the survey findings is identifying best practices across countries. Uh, so is any one country solved the problem and doing it by and large better than anyone else? Uh, not necessarily, but each country in the survey we see does something really well that other countries can learn from. And that's something that we like to, you know, like to focus on and talk about. And one example that I'll give you is in the UK, they've been at the absolute forefront of automatic enrollment and automatic enrollment as a means of uh, getting people to save for retirement. Uh, so that is really, really interesting. Um, the Dutch also have done some really interesting things. Um, they've been, uh, in my view, more bold with some of their social security or what in terms of their system, some of their reforms. Um, and to see how they've done it, uh, because we know here in the U.S., Social Security is in need of reform, uh, but we, and Sean, you're welcome to disagree with me, but we haven't seen a whole lot of appetite yet for actually pursuing any reforms. So those are a couple of examples. Well, I think that's right. Within the U.S., Social Security is, is sometimes referred to as the third rail of politics, and uh, neither party wants to propose changes to it because it's likely going to involve some sort of revenue increase, which could be uh, politically damaging uh, to those parties. But but I agree with you. It's something that needs to be addressed, and we'll see whether it's addressed uh, by the next administration or the, the incoming Congress next January. So so how many, when you, when you look back over the Institute's sort of 
career and breadth and depth of work. How many studies has the Institute completed at this point? Another really fun question. Uh, the TCRS, the annual retirement survey, is now in its 20th year. 2021 will be our 21st annual. Uh, and the, the Center for Health Studies has produced a, a number of reports over the years. And I started counting. If we look at all of our survey reports, uh, white papers, other types of publications, uh, it's well over 100. Uh, and then I lost count. Yeah. <laughs> That is amazing. When when you look back, are there any sort of common threads? I hate to, I want to I want to phrase this correctly. Are there are there any issues that have remained unresolved through that time period? Some persistent issues that you've um, identified and made recommendations on changing, or is it a changing set of issues as you as you look at the sort of the broad sweep of these studies? Uh, there's some persistent issues, and I'll touch on a couple. One is people still are not saving enough for retirement. Um, and it's just proven to be, a, we know it's a really, really tall mountain to climb, but it has proven to be um, exceptionally difficult um, as people are, are working and saving for their retirement. And then we have, we have a great recession or now we have a pandemic. And during these times, of, at times of unemployment, often people are dipping into the retirement savings to get by until they till they get their next job. So overall, um, generally speaking, uh, people uh, people need to be saving more for retirement. Knowing that, and I want to be very compassionate about this. Knowing that it's just extremely difficult, and sometimes life circumstances uh, just don't aren't conducive to saving. Um, so that's one persistent issue. Another one I'd like to talk about because. Uh, I believe it could be more easily addressed, and that is teaching financial literacy in the schools at an early age. Um, and I mentioned we have three interns uh, at any given time, and I always love to ask the interns uh, their high, you know, their junior high and high school math experience. Mine way back when was, you know, it was all about two trains are heading toward each other on a track. One's going X mile an hour, the other's going Y mile an hour. At what speed will they pass each other? Um, and that wasn't particularly relevant because I already knew you don't stand in the middle of a train track if a train's coming. Um, what if instead of these sort of abstract concepts that every possible opportunity, we use money as a way <laughs> of teaching math so that people learn about money from an early age, everything from uh, principles of you know compounding of interest, uh, implications of inflation, you know, uh, even things as simple as keeping a budget and, you know, addition and subtraction. Uh, and then, of course, more math to get people into more advanced functions of via engineering or, or applied mathematics. But what if, what, what would our country and our savings rate look like if we gave the gift of financial literacy at an early age? I think that's fantastic. I know that issue is getting a lot of attention on Capitol Hill, um, but it, it certainly deserves more and it, and it needs to be more broad based, uh, certainly. Given that we're just, uh, you know, just on the other side of federal election, federal and state elections, um, and there was a lot of discrepancy in the polling data to say that to, to be charitable, I, I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask 
you how you conduct polling. I'm, I certainly trust uh, the polling that you've all done to get your responses more so than the political polling. But can you comment a little bit just mechanically how you're doing this? Are you are you and your team actually engaged in the polling? Are you outsourcing it? Um, how does how does just mechanically how does that work? And and how many data points do you need to collect before you feel um, that the data you're capturing is is valid? We take a hybrid approach. Uh, you may find this surprising, but our small and mighty team of five, five full-time employees and three interns does not have the bandwidth to reach out to thousands and thousands of Americans and ask um, a 25-minute survey and then all the data. <laughs> um, we need help. Uh, I think we're good, but we're not that good. Uh, so what we've done over the years is we team up with a, a world-renowned uh, research entity, the Harris Poll, which has one of the largest and most reputable online survey panels here in the U.S. and 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 they're also around the world. And we use them for our U.S. research. And how we work with them. Our team are the core group of experts on our topic. For example, retirement security. So what we'll do is we'll develop the survey questionnaire. And as I mentioned, our survey is now going, going into its 21st, uh, 21st wave, as we call it. We have a number of tracking questions that we ask over the years, but then we also, we want to keep it fresh. You know, we'll weed out old questions and, and bring in some new topics that are timely and relevant. So, for example, we just finished uh, this year's questionnaire, which we COVIDized uh, a year ago. We wouldn't have thought to ask anything related to a pandemic because it wasn't on our radar screen. Uh, so, so we work on the survey questionnaires, and then we work through it with the Harris team to ensure that it's structurally the structural integrity is there, and it's uh, it's getting at what we need to get at in a logical manner, and. Um, uh, we love to ask questions, so they hold us to our 25-minute <laughs> survey length. Otherwise, we'd be asking a, a hour and 25-minute survey uh, because we have lots of questions. Um, then what they do is they actually handle all of the data gathering. So through their online panel, they push out invitations. Um, and, and stop me if this is getting too mechanical. They they gather all of the survey responses on our behalf, and then they do all the data crunching. Um, and provide us with the cross-tabulation reports, and then we do the analysis of the results and the report building in-house with our with our team of analysts, with our small and mighty team. That's great. Thank you. I think given that what we've just been through as a country, through the election, through the polling, and as I said, some of the skepticism of how political polling takes place, I think that's uh, uh, really informative to, to understand how you approach it. And hopefully the the responses that you're getting, people are not shy about talking about retirement and about the issues um, involved in retirement. So, yeah. so that's great. Yeah. You know, one other thing I'd like to say about that is um, one of our guiding principles, our rule to live by, above, uh, really um, above no other else, is we ask fact-based questions. We don't go in with an agenda. There are polls out there that, and you've probably received them yourself, that whoever is the instigator of the poll is trying to prove a point one way or another. And what we do is we ask just very general fact-gathering questions. Um, 
without that agenda, our, our mantra is the data tells the story, we give it a voice. So we don't come up with a survey line or a storyline and then go to a survey to prove it. We do a survey, you know, to, to gather the information and then we let the data tell the story. Um, so, so that the, and, and then we can help articulate that story, what we're seeing in the data. That's great. And when you say you let the data tell the story, I do want to compliment you and your team. I think the way your studies illustrate the data, there's a, you know, there's a lot of information in there. And the way it's illustrated is it's very, um, it's approachable, it's digestible, it's not overwhelming. There's as much data as you would like, but I know when I share it with um, public policy people on Capitol Hill and elsewhere, uh, Again, it's very, it's very approachable. They can get as much data as they need, but they can also see the takeaways, which, which is great. And I would encourage everyone, all of our listeners, to, to review these studies and go out and look at them. They're really quite, quite well done, just visually very appealing and obviously, obviously very informative. So we're coming to the end of our conversation, but I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to talk about what research you have in the works and what, uh, what your next study uh, is that we'll, that we'll see sometime soon. We have a very full pipeline and a sneak preview of a couple of things that are coming out uh, over the next couple of months, um, getting us into the first of the year. Uh, and this will be in order of, of release. We have a white paper coming out the first week of December um, that asks, and, and it's designed to ask very thought-provoking questions, not show up with a bunch of answers, um, but it's a it's an employer piece uh, all about the role of the employer uh, in promoting uh, health and financial well-being uh, amid and beyond the pandemic. And it raises uh, all the questions, we've tried to capture all the questions that employers can and should be thinking about as uh, so they navigate through the pandemic and how they look at their role uh, post-pandemic. And the emphasis is on public health. Uh, employers are asked a lot to do a lot of things. You know, they're running businesses. We want them to offer health benefits, retirement benefits, uh, to promote wellness among their employees. And just by virtue of living and breathing and existing in this world, whether employers recognize it or not, they're absolutely central to public health and promoting pu public health, uh, not just with their employees, but with their customers, their stakeholders, their suppliers, everybody they interact with. Um, and if we're going to get through this and if we're going to come out a better, stronger uh, country post-pandemic, uh, we have to acknowledge and recognize what a vital role they play, and they need support in in, in playing that role. Um, coming up on December 17th, uh, we have our compendium of finding of U.S. workers, which I'm really excited about. Uh, one of the things that we emphasize in our research is we like to look at different demographics because there is no such thing as an average American. And demo different demographics have, uh, there's a common set of uh, needs and trends, but then there's some specific issues among among various demographics. So the demographic report's coming out on December 17th. And it has one of my favorite survey questions in it. And it's one that uh, Sean served as a strategic advisor on. And that is a survey question about 
what the new president and administration can do to help promote retirement security. So stay tuned for the big answer on December 17th. Um, then after the first of the year, we have a workplace wellness study coming out, uh, something that we sponsored with Jones University and um, a new global report that'll come out targeted for late January uh, that is on the retirement outlook of people in their 20s and 30s uh, globally. So looking across our 15 different survey countries and the global survey, um, how this new generation of adults are uh, preparing or not preparing or thinking about um, financial security amid have unprecedented uh, assuming, and we will get through the pandemic, but people have the potential of living longer than any other time in history. So we're we're weighing in with 20 and 30 somethings um, on their views of of work, life, work, and retirement uh, at this point in their in their careers. And one of the things I really really love about this report is. Um, our project team, which Sean asked about and I mentioned, um, globally, we have uh, quite a few 20-somethings and 30-somethings, and they, this is their report. This is their voice. This is not somebody who, this is not me or, or some of the, some of the uh, 40 and 50 or 60-somethings on the team. This, re this report is written by and for uh, our 20-somethings and 30-somethings on the team, and it's really exciting. That is exciting. I was going to ask you what you're doing in your free time, but apparently you have no free time, so I'll, I'll skip that question. I would encourage everyone to visit the Trans-American Institute website to review some of these studies. Um, I would also mention that we have, uh, we're, we're coming to the end of the 116th Congress, starting the 117th Congress. We already have two significant retirement-related pieces of legislation uh, that are moving, and I'm very, I'll be very interested to see how many of the Institute's recommendations are already baked into those pieces of legislation. I know some of them are. We'll have to wait to see the final uh, legislative text, obviously, to, to really do some true cross-referencing. Catherine, I want to thank you for talking with me today. I, I enjoyed our conversation. I hope our listeners have enjoyed the conversation. Um, again, it's just you, you, you and your colleagues uh, do a tremendous amount of work, provide really valuable information. Um, and it's always a pleasure to share it among thought leaders and policymakers. So thank you for doing what you do, and thank you for the conversation today. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. All right.